Oh, hello and welcome. My name is Coach Yo, and welcome to my cycle class. I hope you're ready to roll. Oh my goodness. I wonder how this is gonna go. I ran track, but like, I don't know, this is... Oh, here we go. Hey everybody, welcome. Let's get ready to cycle. I just ordered a pizza, so let's wrap this up in 30 minutes or less. Here we go. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking you wanna quit. Well, I'm here to tell you today is not that day. Instead of slowing down, we're gonna pick it up. Let's go. Come on, doing the best I can. <sighs> oh, I'm trying my best. I got these obstacles in my way. I'm trying to run them over. I just don't feel like I can make it. Are you even listening to me? Oh, my Amazon package arrived. Sick. Come on, everybody, two minutes till pizza. Keep it moving, keep it moving. Pedal for that pepperoni, baby. Pedal for that pepperoni. It's time for the final push. I know those legs are tired, but here we go. Pushing it to the end in three, two, one. Well done, young guns. You made it through class, but I'm here to let you know. I want to see you back next week. I came to Wooddale Church in December of 1996 as the junior high associate. I was 23 years old and I was so impressed of how Wooddale held Jesus up so high, valued teenagers and valued me as a female with gifts in leadership and teaching. Greg Wiseman was the junior high pastor at the time who hired me, and he'd been here 10 years, which was a long time in student ministries. And Greg was legendary. I mean, there were stories of him swinging from the rafters, brushing his teeth while driving the bus on events, and running up mountains. Well, Greg left just under a year after I came. I worked through not taking that personally. <laughs> and suddenly, I was in charge of the junior high ministry until they found a new junior high pastor. One of my first responsibilities was to lead the Project Canada trip with ninth graders. It's a 15-day trip of ninth graders and leaders to the beautiful Canadian Rockies, which was awesome, except... I had never led the trip before. I hadn't even been on the trip before. <laughs> I loved hanging out with the students and leading an amazing team. I loved the heavy lifting work projects that we did around the camp. But the mountain adventures were a little bit more of a challenge for me. So my calves were as strong then as they are today, but my endurance and my cardio were not as strong. I vividly remember riding in the bus on our way to the group hike up Mount Baldy. And all the chatter on the bus was about Greg, the junior high leader before me. So it seemed that multiple years he had run up the mountain. And as I heard the chatter, the anxiety started to well up inside of me. Because if I'm honest, I was just hoping to make it up the mountain without like passing out or having to quit. And this man ran up that mountain. <laughs> well, as we unloaded the bus and started our trek up Mount Baldy, not only did my anxiety rise, but so did the negative self-talk in my head. I remember standing there looking up at that overwhelming incline and I thought to myself, 
if this is what a junior high pastor does, clearly I am unqualified. Have you ever felt unqualified? Have you ever wrestled with your limitations? You're not alone. Moses, who is one of the patriarchs of our Christian faith, wrestled with his limitations. Now, if you grew up in the church, you probably associate Moses with his big moments like leading two million Israelites out of captivity in Egypt or the parting of the Red Sea or bringing down the Ten Commandments off the mountain to his people. But we often forget about how it all started. So Moses was actually born into that captivity, into a Hebrew family. And the Pharaoh at the time was so threatened by the Israelites and how they were increasing in number that he demanded that every Hebrew boy that was born was killed. Now, are those some insecurity issues or what? So when Moses' mom gave birth to him, she feared for his life and she hid him for the first three months. I would assume he either got too big or too loud to hide anymore. So she placed him in a basket in the Nile River. And he was pulled out of that Nile River by Pharaoh's daughter and her attendants. And his sister had been watching for his safety. And she actually approached Pharaoh's daughter and orchestrated that their mom be the one to wean Moses until it was time for him to come back into the palace. And that's exactly what happened. And then he moved into the palace and lived as the princess's son in Pharaoh's palace. She named him Moses because she drew him up out of the water. He lived in that palace for 40 years. And during that time, he walked out to see his people, the Hebrews. And they were hard at work under the Egyptian slave masters. And as he was watching them, he saw one of the Egyptians beating one of the Hebrews. And he was overcome with rage and he killed the Egyptian. He didn't think anyone had seen him, but Pharaoh found out and wanted to kill him. So fearing for his life, Moses fled to Midian. And there he met his wife and became a shepherd for his father-in-law Jethro. And he was a shepherd for 40 years. And that's where we find Moses in our text for today, Exodus chapter 3. So I hope you have your Bibles with you as you are with us today. You know, the Bible is God's primary tool that he gave us to know who he is, what his ways are, and who we are as his people so it just makes sense to me that if you are listening to the teaching of the word, that you would also have the word in your hand, that you'd be highlighting it, taking notes in it, and visibly seeing it. Come on. I mean, teenagers with a short attention span are not the only ones who would benefit from having the word in their hands. So grab your Bible. And if you don't have one, let us know, because we would love to gift you with a Bible. So let's find out how God calls Moses to be a vital part of the story that he's written. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 3, and we're going to start 
right at the beginning. So here's what it says. Now, Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Now, all throughout scripture, we see that God is represented by fire. And even though we see that pattern, it still would have been quite a surprise for Moses to see a bush that was on fire, but not burning up. But I also think of that bush on fire, not burning up as a foreshadowing of other physical phenomena that are about to happen. I mean, the river turned into blood. Hail and darkness fell on command. Masters released millions of slaves all at once, sending them with gold and silver as they left. Seas formed walls of water and food fell from the sky. So what's the message here? The message is God is Lord over all creation and it does what he commands it to do. Now, after 40 years in the palace, Moses became a shepherd, and that's quite a shift if you think about it. I know that being a shepherd was common during that time and place, but it's so different from the life that he came from. There's got to be more to it. I believe that God was preparing Moses. He was preparing him to lead his people just like a shepherd leads a flock with skill and attention. Moses was about to get a new flock, and he was about to get a big flock. So let's continue with the call. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way of the Egyptians are oppressing them. Now, if you were with us last week, when we were studying Gideon in the book of Judges, you heard about a cycle that the Israelites would go through. Are you catching it here? Are you seeing that this same kind of cycle is starting? Remember, 
Israel does evil in the eyes of the Lord. He gives them to oppressors, and then it continues on. Well, this is actually the first time that the Israelites were in captivity. So we catch them right under here with the oppressors. And then they're there for 400 years, and they cry out. Israel cries out to Yahweh in their distress, and Yahweh raises up a deliverer. So this is the first time they're in captivity. It's also the first time that God raises up a deliverer, and that deliverer is Moses. So I can just imagine, as God is talking to Moses and telling him about how he's going to save the people, that Moses is nodding his head, and he's in total agreement. And he's like, yeah, good for you, good for them. And then God adds what we see in verse 10. He says, so now go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. I feel like Moses was like, wait, what, me? He had no idea. And what follows in this text in Exodus is multiple attempts by Moses to convince the Lord God that he's not the person. So let's check it out as we continue. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Who am I? Moses says. Have you ever thought that? As you see the problem in front of you developing, or as you hear a challenge described, and then you're invited to participate in that plan? Moses was 80 years old at the time of this account. And my guess is he thought he was pretty self-aware. He'd lived a lot of life. So he probably felt like he was saying, I know my limitations, God. Humbly speaking, this is not something I can do. You've got the wrong guy. And God's answer to Moses was simple yet powerful. He said, I will be with you. And it's a promise that really should overcome our self-proclaimed limitations. One commentator said it this way that I just love. He said, the I am is with Moses. Moses' assertion that he cannot do this task is correct, but entirely beside the point. He is not doing the saving. Moses says, I cannot do this. Yahweh responds, you're not, I am. <laughs> so Moses continues, though, with his attempts as we look at verses 13 and 14. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Sure, Moses' first concern is about himself, right? I can't do this. 
But his next concern is about other people. They won't think I can do this either. So he asked, who am I? But he anticipated that the Israelites would ask, who are you? Now, sure, he'd been gone for 40 years, but the reputation that he left behind was questionable. He had grown up and been born into a Hebrew family, but then transitioned to the palace where he grew up kind of in this plush life while his people, the Israelites, slaved away, literally. He killed a man, covered it up, and then ran away in disgrace. I think he actually should have been concerned about what other people were going to think about him. God's answer to Moses' second attempt is a confident, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Now, an entire sermon could be given on why God said what he said and what the name really means. But in verse 15, we get a little bit more understanding. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. It's as if the Lord was saying, they know who I am. I am who I have been throughout all time. Next question. Now, you might recognize the words I am from what Jesus said in the New Testament. Jesus proclaimed a number of I am statements, and they actually got him in trouble with the Jews and the religious leaders of the day. He said things like, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. Or the kicker, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And they heard what he was saying. And they reserved the words, I am, only for the God of Israel. And Jesus was saying that he was that God. By Moses' third attempt to get out of God's plan, it becomes comical. I mean, clearly he's stalling. In chapter 4, verse 1, Moses said, What if they do not believe me or listen to me, and they say the Lord did not appear to you? A few verses later, in 10, Moses says to the Lord, Oh Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. God shows so much patience with Moses. He even uh, gives him signs, gives him a sign of throwing down his staff and it turns into a snake and then back into a staff again. He covers his hand with leprosy and then fully restores it. God is told in the Bible to be slow to anger. And that's the truth. But I think in this account, as Moses is backpedaling, he is really pushing the definition of slow. But God is so gracious to him. Even in verse 13 of chapter four, when Moses, overcome by his limitations, just says, oh Lord, please send someone else to do it. That's where we see that God gets a little testy 
And in 4.14, it says, then the Lord's anger burned against Moses. But even in that anger, God was gracious to Moses. And I just love that about him. He offered Aaron, Moses' brother, as a spokesperson. After that, whether we think it's out of fear or obedience, Moses agrees and heads back to his home with Jethro and his wife and his family to prepare for the trip to Egypt. Have you ever wanted to grow in your faith, but have been held back by your limitations like Moses? As I've lived and ministered to teenagers and adults alike, I've come to understand the primary sources of our perceived limitations. Our perceived limitations come from comparison. Now, I'm someone who's incredibly competitive. I like to win, no matter what. I like to win if I am on a flat-top, tabletop Ms. Pac-Man machine. I like to win if I'm playing shoots and ladders against my nieces and nephews or if I'm on the tennis court. I mean, if we're not going to keep track of score, then why even bother? But I've learned that in the comparison game, I cannot win. You cannot win. Because no matter what, there will always be someone better. There will always be someone cuter, smarter, stronger, funnier, wealthier, or more likable. You can't win. And in the process of comparison, your joy will be stolen. So which of your perceived limitations is a result of comparison? What have you resigned to not doing because you can't do it as well as someone else? If God is calling you, he's not mistaken. He's calling you for a reason. And just like he helped Moses understand, we need to know that he is the one that's going to do it, not us. Our perceived limitations come from our past. Every one of us has a past. But the truth is, your past affects you, but it does not define you. I'll get more to that later. But as I think about Moses, I think about God casting this vision as to how he was going to save the Israelites. And Moses was probably thinking, yeah, I I tried to help the Israelites once and I failed. Remember, he saw the Hebrew being beat by the Egyptian and he killed him and tried to cover it up. Literally, he covered up the body with sand. (laughs) That was Moses' past. And for the majority of us, Moses' past is not ours. But there is something in our past, in our history, that keeps us from saying yes to God when he calls us. Something that we claim as a limitation. So what is it for you? You didn't graduate high school. You were promiscuous in college. You have a criminal record. You didn't grow up in the church. 
you were an addict, you were abused, you had to file for bankruptcy, you have struggled with depression. I acknowledge that these situations are real and hard and it's no wonder that we see them as limitations. Our perceived limitations also come from others. Our brains are amazing. They process and log billions of data throughout our lives, including what people have said to us or about us. And I break these down into two categories, either good voices or bad voices. And the good voices are delightful to hear again when our brains bring them back from the past. When I was in eighth grade, I was sitting in the cafeteria having lunch, and Mr. Larson, our eighth grade English teacher, walked by. He had cafeteria duty that day, bless his heart. And we had just gotten back our school pictures. And my envelope, you remember with that big clear square on the front that, that uh, showed you the eight by 10? Well, it was sitting on the table next to me. And I remember Mr. Larson walking by and he stopped and he said, Heather, you're very photogenic. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> I'm 48 years old, and I remember that moment because it was a good voice. Oh, you want to see that eighth grade photo? Of course you do. There it is. <laughs> Clearly, I grew up in the 80s, but I think I'm pretty photogenic. <laughs> good voices are so helpful in our lives. My husband, Chad, and I were dating, and there was a night that we were laying on the blanket looking up at the stars, and Chad said to me, I know God's not supposed to have favorites, but I bet you're one of his favorites. <laughs> I felt like saying, yes, I'll marry you, and then I realized he hadn't asked me to marry him in that moment, but I thought it'd be fun for you to see a picture of us during that time because I think we've aged well. So this is Chad and I. Uh, on our first date, he invited me to a Christmas party for his work. And there we are. <laughs> Good voices. I bet you can tell me a couple of stories in your life that include good voices. But then there are the bad voices. And they are not so delightful to hear. My best friend and really only friend in fifth grade when I had transferred from a private school to a public school, wrote me a letter and said, Heather, basically, I think you're fat, you're ugly, I'm ashamed to be seen with you, and I never want to be your friend again. All throughout my life, especially in high school and college and even post-college, people have told me I'm too much, too much energy, too much strength, too much boldness, too much aggressiveness, I'm too much. I had a parent sit in front of me in my office and she said, you have failed our family. Man, it's hard to not allow those voices, especially the bad ones, to shape our perceived limitations. They hurt and they may even feel true. Now, wouldn't it be a bummer 
if this is where we ended today. This is where I wrapped up. And I said, well, good luck with those perceived limitations. I hope it all works out well for you. <laughs> but thankfully, this is not the end. Because as I have lived and as I have ministered, I've also discovered the truth about our perceived limitations. And the truth about our perceived limitations is God works most often through our weaknesses, not our strengths. Hmm. Have you ever noticed, or did you notice as I was talking, that I've been using the term perceived limitations? It's intentional. Because what we most often see as weaknesses or limitations, God sees as opportunities. Opportunities to show his glory and opportunities to advance his will. Just like last week, when God took an army that was ridiculously small, 300 warriors and Gideon, to defeat the Midianites who numbered 135,000 that was for his glory. It's not about us. It's not about our limitations. It's about him and his glory. The apostle Paul knew that. And he said it this way in 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10. Therefore, in order to keep me from being conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul said, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties, might I add, in limitations. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The truth about our perceived limitations is that, I mentioned it earlier, your past affects you, but it doesn't define you. All of us have a past, and it's probably something that we're going to have to pay attention to the rest of our lives, but it doesn't have to define us. It shouldn't define us. What should define us is what God thinks of us and how God sees us. Jesus came to earth to die for you, saving you and giving you life. You are forgiven. You are redeemed. You are restored. That's what defines you, not your past. Another truth about our perceived limitations is we have an audience of one. Now, people matter. What they think of me means something to me. But I shouldn't let that influence who I am. Many of us have been giving way too much weight to the words of others and not enough to what God says we are. 
Do you sense a pattern here? God says that we are precious. In Genesis, it tells us that we are very good as human beings. We're redeemed, we're forgiven, we're created with purpose and on purpose. We're beloved. Give that the most weight in your life. Let God and his opinion of you override your perceived limitations. The Apostle Paul said it this way in Galatians 1.10. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul says you can't have it both ways. And friends, what I've come to understand in my life is that when I have sought to please God, when I have pursued listening to his voice and his opinion of me, pleasing other people works itself out. So let's all commit to tuning our ears to the audience of one from now on. Let's go back to Canada for the rest of the story. As I battled my way up Mount Baldy that day, wrestling with comparison, my weaknesses, my past, what other people thought of me, the Lord impressed a truth upon me. I sensed it very clearly in my spirit, which is a miracle because I was panting so loud (laughs) that I don't think I could have been aware of anything. But I sensed him saying, I made you for this. I've called you to this. I am with you. I made it up that mountain that day without passing out. (laughs) And what I'm so surprised by is that my weakness actually translated to strength in the eyes of my students. I mean, one of the things I was worried about was whether or not they would see me as weak The exact opposite happened. They were proud of me and the strength that I showed working my way up that mountain, even though it wasn't my jam. (laughs) Oh, you want to see pictures? Oh, I thought you would. Yeah, this is the top of Mount Baldy. (laughs) You can see how red my face is. Everyone else looks happy. My smile is a little bit forced, (laughs) but success. So let's leave with this truth today. God's greatest promise to those who struggle with their doubts and limitations is, I will be with you. It's a promise he made to Moses. He made the same promise to Gideon. And that promise is real to us today. So let's claim it. So Father, we're so grateful again today for your truth and your truth through your servant, Moses. And God, we are so grateful that no matter our situation, no matter our doubts, no matter our perceived limitations, you are God, you are with us, and it is you that is doing the work. So God, may we offer ourselves up to you and be excited 
for what you are going to do in and around and through us when we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.